the Vine Pair Podcast, where we talk about the conversations you have with a glass in hand. From Vine Pair's headquarters in New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And Adam, this week we're going to talk about not a topic in the world of beverage, but a place, Portland, Oregon. Um, I was in Portland recently for Feast Portland, which was a big food and beverage festival that they hold yearly. Really fun. You guys should take a look at it next year. And um, I just thought it would be interesting to talk about Portland because Portland has a very unique and interesting drinks culture uh, that is you know, inspired by a lot of the trends in the national market, but also has its own idiosyncrasies. And so uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with a couple of uh, tastemakers and and people in the Portland scene. And uh, we will get to that interview in a moment here. But I wanted to chat first, uh, because I think, Adam, if I'm correct, you've never been to Portland. So it's just kind of a TV show to you, right? I mean, so I I had been once a long time ago, like uh, when I was still in college. So yeah, I mean, besides that, I haven't been. I just think they put a bird on everything, right? (laughs) It's true, just about. Yeah, they pickle everything, actually. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, to me, Portland is just like one big Brooklyn. Uh, that's basically what it, what has been told to me by the media and by uh, other friends who have been there. I know that's not true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to, for most of us, that's what, what we think of when we think of Portland. We think of this like amazing uh, Brooklyn-esque city that has crazy, you know, awesome farm-to-table restaurants, uh, lots of great craft beer and access to good wine, which I, I'm pretty sure probably isn't totally untrue, correct? <laughs> No, it's definitely true. I think what's interesting about a place like Portland, and it probably is uh, in this way analogous to Brooklyn, is that there is this uh, incredible pace at which the industry um, and the especially the beverage side of it sort of develops and matures. And And it's funny because I go to Portland, um, you know, probably at least once a year, if not more. It's not that far from here in Seattle. And it's crazy how like every time I go, there's three new hot wine bars and the ones that were cool a year ago are like gone. Um, and the, you know, the the beer that everyone's brewing is totally different than it was a year ago. And um, it's just this incredible like churn. And some of it, I think, is driven because like there's a there's space in Portland for um, up and coming producers, restaurants, et cetera. It's not as crazy expensive as, say, like Brooklyn um, or even Seattle. And so there's a little bit more space for people to take off and try a new thing. Um, but there's also this sort of relentless pursuit for the hot new thing. And, and it is kind of crazy in that regard. And that's probably true in a lot of markets. It's not just a Portland thing for sure. Um, but it feels really intense because like every time I go, it's like, oh, there are all these new faces and there's a 26-year-old, you know, uh, brewer slash chef slash uh, you know, street magician and like his place is the hot new thing. And you're just like, okay, cool, great. And then like a year later, it's actually like a 75 year old grandma and her like, you know, uh, combination pickle shop and like, uh, you know, kombucha stand is the hot new thing. I know it's, it's, it's crazy. I know that's a lot of generalizations. Well, but, um, why do you think that is? I mean, why is Portland this place? Because to me, it seems like it moves then at the pace of almost New York where, you know, we know why New Yorkers, why, why things move so fast in New York is because New Yorkers get tired. They want the new, new all the time, right? It's like, this is, this is the, the fastest, you know, the most fast paced city in the country. So, you know, we have like lots of restaurant openings and closings and bar opening and closings because we're looking for the new hotness, right? We never, we never want to, unfortunately have that neighborhood spot i think i think that's changed in the last 10 years in terms of the the pace of new york we used to have lots of neighborhood spots and now it's really i think you know media sites like ours are even help you know driving this whether it's good or bad in which you know everyone just wants to talk about what's cool what's next what's now um but why why is that happening in portland because i thought that's where people go to kind of be more chill i think there are two reasons i think one of them is that trend that you're talking about that maybe is new york driven has definitely spread you know, at least nationwide, if not globally, people are 
fascinated by the new. We know there are lots of media sites dedicated to um, covering the beverage and food industry in, in places like Portland and other cities that are constantly hyping the new place. Um, and there's also the reality, and it's funny, this is something that was said to me by um, a number of different Portlanders and has been said before, is it kind of feels like Portland is a city where no one works. So everyone has sort of time and space to go explore all these new um, venues. And so it's not like, you know, I don't know if this is really true, but in the in the same way and in a way that people in New York dine out a lot, people in Portland go out and dine out a ton. It's crazy how a city that's not that big manages to like fill all of these restaurants because like I was out, you know, I was down there for a long weekend with my wife and everywhere we went was packed. And granted, it was feast weekend. There are definitely people in town, but a lot of them were at, you know, sanctioned events and we were not necessarily doing that. And it's just like, you know, that I'm Seattle is this weird market where there's a lot of half empty restaurants on a Saturday night. Um, and Portland did not feel that way. And obviously we didn't check out every restaurant, but we didn't just go to the absolute new places. We went to a couple of, um, my old favorites and they're still packing it in. And it's, so it's cool. There's, I think there's a great market there for the new thing and the old places definitely, um, stand by, but they have to reinvent themselves, I think pretty regularly. And that's, you know, that's part of what we see too. And, you know, Portland and, and you'll hear this in the interview, you know, Portland is super into like the natural wine trend. There's a lot of emphasis on everything that's really kind of super trendy in, the beverage world is, if not originating in Portland, is very, very quickly being picked up by people in Portland and put into the uh, the market there. And it seems to resonate. And again, you know, whether those things last, whether these natural wine bars that open in the last year will still be natural wine bars or even in existence in three years. I mean, that's a question for another episode that we already did. But um, it's definitely it's definitely exciting. So then, uh, you know, I think moral of the story is, unless uh, I'm proven otherwise by this interview, uh Portland is the Brooklyn of the West Coast. I think that's safe. And, you know, if you ever get bored with <laughs> if you ever get bored with the actual Brooklyn, you can just get on a six hour flight and go to the other one in, <laughs> in on the West Coast. Well, I'm excited to, to hear what they have to say. I'm joined today by Brent Braun. He's the general manager, wine director, and part owner of OK Omens in Portland, Oregon, and Catherine Cole host of The Four Top and a prolific wine writer also here in Portland. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. So we're here in Portland. It's East Portland weekend. So I figured it would be super fun to talk about what drinking in Portland is like besides great. Um, and so let's start a little bit, Brent, with um, this space and this wine bar. And um, you guys have been open for about three months now. Um, what is the kind of the concept and the idea behind OK Omens? And, and what did you see the sort of community need for a bar like this um, that you guys are filling you know portland in general just had this lack of places where you could go casually drink wine and drink affordable wine and uh, drink really good wine most of those places were full sit down kind of higher end restaurants and sometimes you don't want to commit to having a full expensive dinner but you really want the good products that are usually associated with nicer restaurants Uh, we have that next door in castagna and so we figured with the building and the, the space next door to it, we could turn it into a much more casual atmosphere, the kind of place where you can come to have full dinner if you want, but you can also come and take a table and just have a drink. We're not going to you know, kick you out for just being there and drinking. It's, um, I think that happens a lot with some of these places where you feel guilty going in for just a drink because you think you're taking up a table. Um, but we didn't want this to be that. We wanted it to be a place for everyone to come and just enjoy themselves. Uh, and we wanted it to be a little bit more youthful vibe, you know, spending a little bit of time over in Europe, especially like London. Uh, you also see it in New York, this kind of movement of wine bars, wine-focused restaurants that are catering to, you know, we'll say the under 40 crowd or whatever. 
uh, people treating wine like they treat cocktails and beer, just as something to be consumed and to have fun with it. Uh, and we wanted to kind of try to build a place that had that vibe, try to get Portlanders to understand that wine isn't stuffy and it isn't just for rich people and that it is fun to drink. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's definitely an interesting thought because as we enter this period of time where wine is becoming more a, a drink for younger people, not just you know our parents' generation or whatever, um, that sort of the evolving nature of wine bars probably has to um, catch up with that. Catherine, I'm curious, you know, as a, as a Portlander yourself, what do you see from, from sort of the, the wine scene in particular here in Portland? And, and, and what is the, you know, what's kind of the, the current rage besides this bar? You can talk well, about other ones, you know, even if, <laughs> even if Brent might get jealous. Well, no, I think I should talk about this bar because the thing I notice among younger drinkers I have to uh, shout out to my editorial assistant, Zoe, who like, just turned 21, and she and her friends hit all the natural wine bars, and they call them natural wine bars. And OK Omens, I think, fits into that category, correct, Brent? Yeah, yeah, we're naturally focused, naturally leaning. We're not dogmatic, but... Yeah, and it's, I, it's fascinating to me. I mean, when I was doing keg stands and drinking just crappy sangria at college parties, I had no idea about natural wine or organic wine, and... These college kids, they are so discerning, um, and it's just really heartening that there's this whole social scene around consuming really well-made wine that has a story behind it. So I'm actually really curious about that because you guys, you know, talked about natural wine, and, and obviously that's a, been a big part of, um, I think, the wine scene, both from the, the restaurant and, and wine bar scene, but also the production side here, especially in Portland and to a lesser extent Oregon generally. Where do you see that sort of impetus coming from? Is that have you seen that that's been more driven by consumer demand? Has it been driven on the winemaking side, where, where winemakers have oriented themselves around those principles, and thus the the consumers and the people running wine bars and whatnot have said, okay, well that's what the people here want, or people here are making, so that's what we're going to sell. Or has it come from you know people like you, Brent, like the sommeliers and the wine directors who have said sort of this is what we really like, and then the audience and maybe the winemaking has come to follow that. God, I mean, it's, I would say it kind of all happened at once and, and almost simultaneously. Winemakers, wine growers, grape growers specifically, uh, I think we're beginning to focus that way because they see European counterparts doing that. And it's just more sustainable. It's healthier to have vineyards that are not doused in chemicals. Uh, if you have healthy grapes, you probably have native yeast populations. And so that leads to native yeast fermentations. Um, and so I think wine growers wanted to do that because they thought it would make a better product at the end. I think Somme saw that a lot of these wines had a purity to them that was really appealing and sometimes a wildness that was really unique. And so they started buying them and selling them. And I think drinkers, especially younger drinkers, immediately tasted these wines and said, hey, this doesn't taste like the stuff my dad drank that I was not interested in. This tastes fun. This tastes different. And so kind of all at once, everyone was on the same page about, like, this makes sense for now. Is there a is there like a specific place or a couple places in Portland that you can point to as being like they were doing it first or because I feel like we've seen this this sort of new uh, generation including OK Omens you know relatively recently opened in the last year or two of, of wine bars but obviously Portland has a rich wine history and connected of course to the to the wine production in the state is there someone or, or a couple of either people or, or or establishments that you could point to as being like hey they were they were the first to kind of really go down this path. Hmm. It's okay if the answer is no. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you have, like, some of the old guard wine growers, someone like John Paul from Cameron, who was always doing things in a more wild manner in his own way. Um, but I don't think a lot of 
those guys were able to weave the narrative that the natural wine scene's been able to weave now. But it was a lot of people who worked for them or who came up with them. You look at someone like Scott Frank at Bow and Arrow, um, you know, Sterling from Holden. Uh, it was a lot of winemakers in Portland that have really been, I think, instrumental in this movement because in Portland we're so closely intertwined with our wine growing region and mm-hmm. our wine growers that um, that relationship's a lot stronger here and has more influence than in maybe other cities. Yeah, I agree. I think also there's there's this young generation of folks who came up out of Portland restaurants and had jobs like Brent's. They were psalms or wine directors um, and went on to winemaking. And they're making wine in the city of Portland. And this is a culture that values the maker movement, um, knowing your maker. So I think that young um, young consumers love the idea of being in the city and only riding their bike or walking a few steps and being able to actually interact with a winemaker at a place like Southeast Wine Collective when you were saying what were some places that maybe started the ball rolling. Um, Southeast Wine Collective definitely was one of them because a lot of small winemakers got their start there. Mm -hmm. It's a shared collective winemaking facility. Yeah, Yeah. so much came out of that space. So many winemakers came out of that space. It was such a kind of incubator for a lot of what we're seeing right now. And is there, you know, you mentioned sort of the maker movement and the idea of being able to, you know, go to the place where your uh, beverage, whether it's, you know, beer, wine, spirits is made. Um, how does that translate as a, as a proprietor of, a, of an establishment, as a, as a bar owner, um, in terms of, uh, you know, how do you balance putting stuff on your list? Because you certainly have, you know, a fair number of Oregon wines, but you also have wine from all over the world. You've got spirits from other parts of the world. How do you balance that sort of desire to... Um, to promote and to highlight and to interact with this um, whole scene here in Portland without necessarily being 100% devoted to it, obviously offering things that you're excited about from all over the world. Mm -hmm. I think part of what I end up focusing on a lot is that I want to show off Oregon and I want to represent what we're doing here, but I also don't want to sell people things that are from Oregon that aren't as good as what you would get in other places of the world because um, there are a lot of consumers who don't care that it's from here. They just want the best thing they can get. And so I'm looking to not just support every Oregon winery ever. I want the ones who are making wines that I do think stand up qualitatively to the best wines being made from the rest of the world. And luckily, a lot of those wines exist enough to fill out whole wine programs. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Catherine, I'm wondering too, like, do you see that um, there's been more, it seems to me from, from Seattle, not that far away, but far enough away to not feel like I know this 100% that um, that there's been this evolution in in the Oregon wine scene to be actually the Oregon wine scene. I feel like, you know, five, ten years ago if t- someone talked about wine from Oregon, they talked about Willamette Valley and almost always Pinot Noir maybe a little bit of Riesling, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay but but now I think you're starting to see more conversation around, um, you know, wines from um, Southern Oregon, from the Columbia Gorge and Hood River area, the Dales how, how do you see sort of the broader Oregon wine scene evolving and, and is it is it, um, is it a, do you think it's a, a sort of a response to the popularity of the Willamette Valley or, or just coincidence? Uh, well, it is, it's sort of a positive outcome of what's happened to the economy, especially here. We've had a lot of money coming in from California and Burgundy. So the price of real estate in the Willamette Valley has shot up and it's getting close to Napa and Sonoma. So a young winemaker today cannot just take out a bank loan and buy a vineyard. It's just not possible. Um, so our urban winemakers might be leasing some vines, some, some land, you know, down in the valley, but they might also be buying fruit from the gorge or, you know, somewhere else, 
it's they're exploring new territory, places that they can drive to easily, where there is fruit that's available. Um, but also, I think that there's a feeling that you know the, the why reinvent the wheel? You know, Pinot Noir has already been done. It's been done very well. Um, Chardonnay is kind of at its peak right now in Oregon right now. So. What else can winemakers do here? They can explore other varieties like Chenin Blanc or Cabernet Franc and see, you know, what can they do with these these different varieties? And that's really exciting. And that happened with, uh, you know, I, that example of uh, St. Reginald's Parish. Uh, so Andy Young, I had a conversation with him the other day, basically like very similar conversation about his Pinot Noirs in 2016. And he said he didn't feel like he had anything to add to the Pinot Noir conversation in Oregon. So many of these producers have the great terroirs on lockdown and so instead of just making conventional pinot noir uh he made everything 100 percent carbonic in 2016 and his pinot noir actually has i think eight percent pinot gris in there and that was his way of you know making something with a grape that uh has some kind of unique expression to it or making it <laughs> and for those of us who have been drinking pinot noir from oregon for 20 years <laughs> it's actually super exciting to taste a wine like that just something new and different for sure so let's step back from wine uh, specifically for a moment and talk about what drinking in Portland is like. So obviously, we've talked a little bit about the the new wave of wine bars here, and you know we sort of talked broadly about um, sort of the maker movement and all that. But but what is someone who comes to Portland and and obviously food tourism and, and beverage tourism is a big part of um, what draws people to this city. What what are some things that people should be aware of? It can certainly be specifics, but just in general, like what should people who are interested in traveling here be on the lookout for? Like what can they expect? Like what, where, like, what's fun to do on a night out? And as someone with a three-month-old, I'm just going to imagine what this is like because nights out aren't very common for me. I mean, I, I think what's fun is it's not only that there are all these fantastic wine bars and microbreweries and artisanal distillers. I mean, you can do the whole alcoholic tour, whatever your your poison is, pick it, and there's a, an urban tour you can do. Um, what's really fun is, especially if you have kids, you can do the Oregon Artisanal Tea Tour artisanal <laughs> roasters there's coffee if you are into kombucha some of the country's best kombucha makers are here in portland i mean it really is a city that is all about beverage and it is funny though because you'll be driving around it's whenever i have guests from out of town i'll be driving them around and they'll be like does anyone work here because <laughs> the cafes are always full of people just sitting either sipping tea or coffee or kombucha or whatever it is everyone's got their beverage and everyone kind of geeks out about it yeah. And, the, you know, the thing about coming to Oregon, too, with that is because we're surrounded by nature, you can, like, come and do, like, a coffee tasting and then a tea tasting and then be like, okay, let's go on a hike for, like, three hours and then come back and then do a beer tasting and then go, like, walk down the river and then go do it. You can, like, intersperse, uh, like, putting everything delicious into your body with, like, experiencing nature at the same time, which is so different than, you know, say, taking a visit to New York where <laughs> in between those gaps of drinking, you have museums and, and, and galleries and such, but, like... It's easier to just drink all day, I think. Isn't it? Or Las Vegas. Yeah, well, <laughs> not a lot of nature tours in Las Vegas. Well, they'll probably put something inside a casino before too long. Maybe some sort of zoo, There's if there isn't already. Great wine down there, though. I'm sure there is. Um, so, I guess kind of along the, the lines of this conversation about um, natural wine and about the the connection between the let's say, wine industry in Portland in terms of um, selling it and buying it. Um, do you see people kind of go back and forth between the two? Catherine, before you mentioned that a lot of the sort of the, the newer winemakers in the area are people who started out in restaurants on maybe the, the wine or beverage side. Do you see back and forth? I mean, like, and I know this is maybe kind of not what we were talking about in terms of natural wine, but I was also struck by sort of uh, something I saw downtown Portland earlier today, which was the like Domaine Serene wine bar. So Domaine Serene, very iconic 
uh, producer in uh, the Dundee Hills who now has opened a wine bar. So is there are you getting more interplay between wine industry on the production side and wine industry on the sort of restaurant bar side? Or, or how does that work? Hmm. Sorry, that was a broad question. Yeah. <laughs> Huh. I mean, I think I think that the like, wineries like Domaine Serene are seeing that um, it's not, a, not maybe not so much about hospitality, but about getting traction in this market because the sums in this market, tastemakers like Brent Braun, for example, um, people are watching what they're buying and following suit and picking up those those very small Oregon brands in New York and other other markets. Um, so I think some of the producers in the Valley are seeing that and saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, we've got South Carolina and Florida locked down, but we got to get Portland back in our book because if the Psalms in Portland are buying our wine, then people are going to come from New York and see that. So it's interesting that, that sort of the impetus is, I mean, it used to be that you'd go to New York to figure out what everyone was drinking, but now it seems like people are coming here to find out what to drink next. You know, there's this... It, it's it's so true, um, and I think a lot of those wineries for a while kind of neglected the Portland market in a way because um, they had built a name over the you know '90s or whatever, and they kind of expected the wines would just sell based on those merits in Portland. But they weren't doing the legwork anymore. They weren't coming to town anymore. They weren't coming to eat at our restaurants. And as a new generation of Psalms came up, we had no connection to these wines except for the names and the scores, which we don't care about generally uh, as a as a generation. And um, and for a while, I feel like there was this kind of embitterment with those bigger wineries being like, you know what, we don't need Portland. We're doing fine in the rest of the country. The rest of the country loves uh, us and loves Oregon Pinot. And I think it's looping back around to them realizing that you can't neglect your home market. And I think part of the building of these t- downtown tasting rooms is being like, well, how can we like have some outreach to and try to connect to the current Portland crop of buyers and psalms? Um, whether that's working or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's a probably a positive trend to try to loop everyone back in is there also just a straight up pricing issue where you know we, you talked to Catherine about how the cost of land in the willamette valley has gotten so high and of course with expensive land comes expensive fruit and expensive wines and i think you know brent we were talking before we were recording about sort of the 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 realities of of portland as a market which even though there's you know portland is a growing city and there's definitely food tourism it's still you know there's the economy in portland is um you know isn't New York City or, or San Francisco or Chicago or Seattle or whatever. And so there's definitely more, you know, there's, there can be hard to maybe find um, a buyer for your especially higher-end Oregon Pinot Noir in most settings. You know, do is there some issue where these wineries maybe need to sort of take note and say, like, hey, maybe we need to think about if we want to be in spots like this or in other, even in restaurants, um, you know, we, we maybe have to put wine in the marketplace, whether that's um, another label or just hey, we got to take a little bit of a hit in Portland to sell our wine to Portland Psalms. I think absolutely, because when you look at a brand like, I don't know, some of those bigger brands, with the price points they're selling their wines at, if they're on a restaurant list, you're talking over $100. But that same consumer can also just drive to the winery and buy it there. There's no lack of availability of those wines. And so, you know, that markup doesn't make sense anymore. Where if you're buying something from a smaller producer and it's on my list for 45 and they find it, you know direct from the winery or the wine shop for 30 that's only like $15. That's not nearly the same as a $60 wine that's 120 on a list or whatever. And so the higher you get in price, like the more those restaurant margins seem really untenable for guests. Um, and so, yeah, I think some of them are starting to, you know, create a kind of more value-driven tiers of wines that are more restaurant-friendly. Excellent. Well, that's really cool. And, and I think definitely something that is a is good reminder for the wine industry folks out there that you know 
those of us in the restaurant trade have to uh, have to be able to offer our customers something of value, and uh, sometimes that has to be um, value that we get on you know you guys taking a lesser margin, as painful as that can be sometimes. Um, okay, so I just have kind of like a last broad question, which is um, sort of outside of uh, the world of wine, because again, that's sort of where all of us are focused. But you know, we want to talk about other things. What other beverage, and maybe, Catherine, you mentioned a bunch of them that are available here. What other beverage or some other specific um, producer or beverage generally um, that's being made here in Portland is most exciting to you guys right now? Mm. Well, I I have to say I love going to a place called T-Bar. There are two locations that I know of. And just because aesthetically it's a very pleasing place to be, everything's organic, Um but I'm not going to recommend T-Bar because that's more about the atmosphere. Um, I'm going to recommend the Stephen Smith. Um, I don't know if it's their flagship or whatever. It's down in the Central East Side um, kind of warehouse district. And they have this beautiful little jewel case of a little showroom. And you can go in and sit down and have a tea. And their nitro chai is <laughs> just mind-blowing it's like having beer tea and dessert all at once but it's not sweet it's spicy but it's got like the texture of beer i love it um so that's my recommendation yeah brent god i don't know if i have anything right now i've been i've been so holed up here for the last five months uh that uh, i don't even know what's out in the world anymore <laughs> well i guess well, i know what's open at after 12.30 when I get out of here, and it's um, bars with cheap whiskey. So. <laughs> that, there's probably even some of them that are made here. There's at least a little bit of whiskey being made here. I know that. Usually not cheap, unfortunately. That's true. Well, but, you know. You know. Again, as we talked about, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the, the challenge to the uh, artisanal side. Is yes. People want to make a living doing it, which is you know, commendable. Uh, well, yeah, thank you both so much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to uh, continuing to explore uh, Portland and uh, not just the wine scene here, but the beverage scene here, which is as previously mentioned. Super exciting. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Zach, that was super interesting. I was uh, really, really glad that you were able to do that interview and that I was able to learn a little bit more about Portland. And actually, it's got me really excited for my trip that I have coming up where I actually am going to Portland uh, for the first time since, uh, you know, being a part of Vine Pair. So, I mean, I, I can't wait to eat and drink my way through that entire city. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it and to talking to you next week. Yeah. Thanks so much. And thanks for everyone for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.